This is section eight of Mark Twain's Journal Writings, Volume Two. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Mark Twain's Journal Writings, Volume Two. Lost in the Snow by Mark Twain. Read by John Greenman. We mounted and started. The snow lay so deep on the ground that there was no sign of a road perceptible, and the snowfall was so thick that we could not see more than a hundred yards ahead, else we could have guided our course by the mountain ranges. The case looked dubious, but Ollendorf said his instinct was as sensitive as any compass, and that he could strike a bee-line for Carson City and never diverge from it. He said that if he were to straggle a single point out of the true line, his instinct would assail him like an outraged conscience. Consequently, we dropped into his wake, happy and content. For half an hour we poked along warily enough, but at the end of that time we came upon a fresh trail, and Ollendorf shouted proudly, "'I knew I was as dead certain as a compass, boys! Here we are, right in somebody's tracks, that will hunt the way for us without any trouble. Let's hurry up and join company with the party.' So we put the horses into as much of a trot as the deep snow would allow, and before long it was evident that we were gaining on our predecessors, for the tracks grew more distinct. We hurried along, and at the end of an hour the tracks looked still newer and fresher, but what surprised us was that the number of travelers in advance of us seemed to steadily increase. We wondered how so large a party came to be traveling at such a time and in such a solitude. Somebody suggested that it must be a company of soldiers from the fort, and so we accepted that solution, and jogged along a little faster still, for they could not be far off now. But the tracks still multiplied, and we began to think the platoon of soldiers was miraculously expanding into a regiment. Ballou said they had already increased to five hundred. Presently he stopped his horse and said, "'Boys, these are our own tracks.' and we've actually been circusing round and round in a circle for more than two hours out here in this blind desert by george this is perfectly hydraulic then the old man waxed wroth and abusive he called ollendorf all manner of hard names said he never saw such a lurid fool as he was and ended with a peculiarly venomous opinion that he did not know as much as a logarithm we certainly had been following our own tracks Ollendorf and his mental compass were in disgrace from that moment. After all our hard travel, here we were on the bank of the stream again, with the inn beyond dimly outlined through the driving snowfall. While we were considering what to do, the young Swede landed from the canoe, and took his pedestrian way Carsonwards, singing his same tiresome song about his sister and his brother, and the child in the grave with its mother, and in a short minute faded and disappeared in the white oblivion. He was never heard of again. He no doubt got bewildered and lost, and fatigue delivered him over to sleep, and sleep betrayed him to death. Possibly he followed our treacherous tracks till he became exhausted and dropped. Presently the overland stage forded the now fast receding stream and started toward Carson on its first trip since the flood came. We hesitated no longer now, but took up our march in its wake, and trotted merrily along, for we had good confidence in the driver's bump of locality. 
but our horses were no match for the fresh stage team we were soon left out of sight but it was no matter for we had the deep ruts the wheels made for a guide by this time it was three in the afternoon and consequently it was not very long before night came and not with a lingering twilight but with a sudden shutting down like a cellar door as is its habit in that country the snowfall was still as thick as ever and of course we could not see fifteen steps before us but all about us the white glare of the snow-bed enabled us to discern the smooth sugar-loaf mounds made by the covered sage-bushes and just in front of us the two faint grooves which we knew were the steadily filling and slowly disappearing wheel-tracks now those sage-bushes were all about the same height three or four feet they stood just about seven feet apart all over the vast desert each of them was a mere snow-mound now in any direction that you proceeded the same as in a well-laid-out orchard you would find yourself moving down a distinctly defined avenue with a row of these snow-mounds on either side of it an avenue the customary width of a road nice and level in its breadth and rising at the sides in the most natural way by reason of the mounds but we had not thought of this then imagine the chilly thrill that shot through us when it finally occurred to us far in the night that since the last faint trace of the wheel-tracks had long ago been buried from sight we might now be wandering down a mere sagebrush avenue miles away from the road and diverging further and further away from it all the time having a cake of ice slipped down one's back is placid comfort compared to it there was a sudden leap and stir of blood that had been asleep for an hour and a sudden arousing of all the drowsing activities in our minds and bodies we were alive and awake at once and shaking and quaking with consternation too there was an instant halting and dismounting a bending low and an anxious scanning of the roadbed useless of course for if a faint depression could not be discerned from an altitude of four or five feet above it it certainly could not with one's nose nearly against it we seemed to be in a road but that was no proof we tested this by walking off in various directions the regular snow mounds and the regular avenues between them convinced each man that he had found the true road and that the others had found only false ones plainly the situation was desperate we were cold and stiff and the horses were tired we decided to build a sagebrush fire and camp out till morning this was wise because if we were wandering from the right road and the snowstorm continued another day our case would be the next thing to hopeless if we kept on all agreed that a campfire was what would come nearest to saving us now and so we set about building it we could find no matches and so we tried to make shift with the pistols not a man in the party had ever tried to do such a thing before but not a man in the party doubted that it could be done and without any trouble because every man in the party had read about it in books many a time and had naturally come to believe it with trusting simplicity just as he had long ago accepted and believed that other common book fraud about indians and lost hunters making a fire by rubbing two dry sticks together we huddled together on our knees in the deep snow and the horses put their noses together and bowed their patient heads over us 
and while the feathery flakes eddied down and turned us into a group of white statuary we proceeded with the momentous experiment we broke twigs from a sagebrush and piled them on a little cleared place in the shelter of our bodies in the course of ten or fifteen minutes all was ready and then while conversation ceased and our pulses beat low with anxious suspense ollendorf applied his revolver pulled the trigger and blew the pile clear out of the county it was the flattest failure that ever was now, this was distressing but it paled before a greater horror the horses were gone i had been appointed to hold the bridles but in my absorbing anxiety over the pistol experiment i had unconsciously dropped them and the released animals had walked off in the storm it was useless to try to follow them for their footfalls could make no sound and one could pass within two yards of the creatures and never see them we gave them up without an effort at recovering them and cursed the lying books that said horses would stay by their masters for protection and companionship in a distressful time like ours we were miserable enough before we felt still more forlorn now patiently but with blighted hope we broke more sticks and piled them and once more the prussian shot them into annihilation plainly to light a fire with a pistol was an art requiring practice and experience and the middle of a desert at midnight in a snowstorm was not a good place or time for the acquiring of the accomplishment we gave it up and tried the other each man took a couple of sticks and fell to chafing them together at the end of half an hour we were thoroughly chilled and so were the sticks we bitterly execrated the indians the hunters and the books that had betrayed us with the silly device and wondered dismally what was next to be done at this critical moment mr ballou fished out four matches from the rubbish of an overlooked pocket to have found four gold bars would have seemed poor and cheap good luck compared to this one cannot think how good a match looks under such circumstances or how lovable and precious and sacredly beautiful to the eye this time we gathered sticks with high hopes and when mr ballou prepared to light the first match there was an amount of interest centered upon him that pages of writing could not describe the match burnt hopefully a moment and then went out it could not have carried more regret with it if it had been a human life the next match simply flashed and died the wind puffed the third one out just as it was on the imminent verge of success we gathered together closer than ever and developed a solicitude that was rapt and painful as mr ballou scratched our last hope on his leg it lit burned blue and sickly and then budded into a robust flame shading it with his hands the old gentleman bent gradually down and every heart went with him everybody too for that matter and blood and breath stood still the flame touched the sticks at last took gradual hold upon them hesitated took a stronger hold hesitated again held its breath five heart-breaking seconds then gave a sort of human gasp and went out nobody said a word for several minutes it was a solemn sort of silence even the wind put on a stealthy sinister quiet and made no more noise than the falling flakes of snow finally a sad-voiced conversation began 
and it was soon apparent that in each of our hearts lay the conviction that this was our last night with the living. I had so hoped that I was the only one who felt so. When the others calmly acknowledged their conviction, it sounded like the summons itself. Ollendorf said, "'Brothers, let us die together, and let us go without one hard feeling towards each other. Let us forget and forgive bygones. I know that you have felt hard towards me for turning over the canoe, and for knowing too much, and leading you round and round in the snow, but I meant well. Forgive me. I acknowledge freely that I have had hard feelings against Mr. Ballou for abusing me and calling me a logarithm, which is a thing I do not know what, but no doubt a thing considered disgraceful and unbecoming in America, and it has scarcely been out of my mind, and has hurt me a great deal. But let it go. I forgive Mr. Ballou with all my heart, and—poor Ollendorf broke down, and the tears came. He was not alone, for I was crying, too, and so was Mr. Ballou. Ollendorf got his voice again, and forgave me for things I had done and said. Then he got out his bottle of whiskey, and said that whether he lived or died, he would never touch another drop. He said he had given up all hope of life, and although ill-prepared, was ready to submit humbly to his fate. That he wished he could be spared a little longer, and not for any selfish reason, but to make a thorough reform in his character, and by devoting himself to helping the poor, nursing the sick, and pleading with the people to guard themselves against the evils of intemperance, make his life a beneficent example to the young, and lay it down at last with the precious reflection that it had not been lived in vain. He ended by saying that his reform should begin at this moment, even here in the presence of death, since no longer time was to be vouchsafed wherein to prosecute it to men's help and benefit, and with that he threw away the bottle of whiskey. Mr. Ballou made remarks of similar purport, and began the reform he could not live to continue, by throwing away the ancient pack of cards that had solaced our captivity during the flood and made it bearable. He said he never gambled, but still was satisfied that the meddling with cards in any way was immoral and injurious, and no man could be wholly pure and blemishless without eschewing them. "'And therefore,' continued he, "'in doing this act I already feel more in sympathy with that spiritual Saturnalia necessary to entire and obsolete reform.' These rolling syllables touched him as no intelligible eloquence could have done, and the old man sobbed with a mournfulness not unmingled with satisfaction. My own remarks were of the same tenor as those of my comrades, and I know that the feelings that prompted them were heartfelt and sincere. We were all sincere, and all deeply moved and earnest, for we were in the presence of death, and without hope. I threw away my pipe and in doing it felt that at last I was free of a hated vice, and one that had ridden me like a tyrant all my days. While I yet talked, the thought of the good I might have done in the world, and the still greater good I might now do, with these new incentives and higher and better aims to guide me, if I could only be spared a few years longer, overcame me, and the tears came again. We put our arms about each other's necks and awaited the warning drowsiness that precedes death by freezing. 
it came stealing over us presently, and then we bade each other a last farewell. A delicious dreaminess wrought its web about my yielding senses, while the snowflakes wove a winding sheet about my conquered body. Oblivion came. The battle of life was done. I do not know how long I was in a state of forgetfulness, but it seemed an age. A vague consciousness grew upon me by degrees, and then came a gathering anguish of pain in my limbs and through all my body. I shuddered. The thought flitted through my brain, This is death. This is the hereafter. Then came a white upheaval at my side, and a voice said with bitterness, Will some gentleman be so good as to kick me behind? It was Baloo. At least it was a tousled snow image in a sitting posture with Baloo's voice. I rose up, and there in the gray dawn, not fifteen steps from us, were the frame buildings of a stage station, and under a shed stood our still saddled and bridled horses. An arched snowdrift broke up now, and Ollendorf emerged from it, and the three of us sat and stared at the houses without speaking a word. We really had nothing to say. We were like the profane man who could not do the subject justice. The whole situation was so painfully ridiculous and humiliating that words were tame, and we did not know where to commence anyhow. The joy in our hearts at our deliverance was poisoned, well-nigh dissipated indeed. We presently began to grow pettish by degrees, and sullen, and then angry at each other, angry at ourselves, angry at everything in general. We moodily dusted the snow from our clothing, and, in unsociable single file, plowed our way to the horses, unsaddled them, and sought shelter in the station. I have scarcely exaggerated a detail of this curious and absurd adventure. It occurred almost exactly as I have stated it. We actually went into camp in a snowdrift in a desert, at midnight, in a storm, forlorn and hopeless, within fifteen steps of a comfortable inn. For two hours we sat apart in the station and ruminated in disgust. The mystery was gone now, and it was plain enough why the horses had deserted us. Without a doubt they were under that shed a quarter of a minute after they had left us, and they must have overheard and enjoyed all our confessions and lamentations. After breakfast we felt better, and the zest of life soon came back. The world looked bright again, and existence was as dear to us as ever. Presently an uneasiness came over me, grew upon me, assailed me without ceasing. Alas, my regeneration was not complete. I wanted to smoke. I resisted with all my strength, but the flesh was weak. I wandered away alone and wrestled with myself an hour. I recalled my promise of reform, and preached to myself persuasively, upbraidingly, exhaustively. But it was all in vain. I shortly found myself sneaking among the snowdrifts hunting for my pipe. I discovered it after a considerable search, and crept away to hide myself and enjoy it. I remained behind the barn a good while, asking myself how I would feel if my braver, stronger, truer comrades should catch me in my degradation. At last I lit the pipe, and no human being can feel meaner and baser than I did then. 
I was ashamed of being in my own pitiful company. Still dreading discovery, I felt that perhaps the further side of the barn would be somewhat safer, and so I turned the corner. As I turned the one corner, smoking, Ollendorf turned the other with his bottle to his lips, and between us sat unconscious Baloo, deep in a game of solitaire with the old greasy cards. End of Lost in the Snow by Mark Twain Read by John Greenman